yeah she's always happy to share intimate details <laughs> with the world into into the oversharing this is yeah, the podcast i'm zain yao but i'm just bringing up that i have two amazing guests with me rihanna walcott and dr samara linton although uh, walcott will also be a doctor very shortly talking to them about their amazing collection the color of madness but in particular i was picking up that one of the concluding sections called the in conversation with the editors and i realized that i had witnessed one of these moments about rihanna's mental health uh when she talks about uh, the mania putting up lots of shelves and it was this work day where um, we were together with our friend Jade and Rihanna was working frantically on everything except for work mm-hmm. if that seems scary yep I think um, that's fair <laughs> yes and you were doing you're getting so much done except for the writing that you said you were going to do that day and part of it then you also started ambitiously putting up all these floating shelves and then you end up being really harsh with yourself when it wasn't perfect. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't figure, so this was like pretty much my first time putting up shelves myself. I managed to do the first one perfectly, but it was a false wall. And obviously this is a rented apartment. I was really stressed about making a mess of it. And yet I decided that it had to be done right in that very moment. There was no other, there was no other time that this could happen. And, you know, I was calling my uncle and he was like, yeah, I can come do it like maybe day after, like tomorrow, which is, you know, which is fine in a normal person's life. Yes, I can come and help you with that tomorrow. It's fine. But to me, that was just not acceptable. And so I started crying. I had to have a go a little lie down in my room. <laughs> and then I think that was literally the day that you and Jade, Zion and Jade said to me, oh, have you considered that you might have ADHD? And literally it all kind of spiraled from that moment because I hadn't really realized that like a lot of my like hyperfixation and, and mania and stuff like that were kind of textbook <laughs> but yeah it hadn't really occurred to me before that but yeah and especially yeah. like as friends like and we've been on so many different work trips together mm. like seeing you seeing someone that you care about and that level of distress and like trying to work really hard but also like not working quite on the right thing mm. and like sort of you're just sitting there and you're like oh Rihanna wants to put some shelves oh okay <laughs> but also maybe like is this the moment to do it but then I remember you also just having this moment that once you finished and you weren't really sure about how if they were level enough and you're like I want to jump off the balcony I think is what you said oh yeah like (laughs) intervention is needed (laughs) (laughs) it was that was really sad yeah that and also like the absolute urgency about making banana bread or something like I have to do this right now and I cannot move on to any other task until this is completed and then couldn't be completed until the next day and I think that was a bit of a spiral well, here we are. <laughs> here we are, getting out of the spiral. Um, I did a brief sort of intro, but how about um, oh, yeah, we do, do let you have a both introduce yourselves, and maybe we should start with Samara, since you've already had your own little intro. <laughs> I am Samara Linton, Dr. Samara Linton, if you're fancy. And um, <laughs> my, yeah, my background is in medicine. I trained in medicine, worked as a doctor for a little bit before um, moving on to other areas in various ways of content production and content creation and yeah my thing is mental health and race and gender and inequalities and whether that was in my clinical work or now in my more kind of creative work um, that's kind of been a constant theme throughout a lot of the things that I do and work on. Wonderful Um, and Rihanna? Yeah well um, I'm Rihanna Walker I am oh I am for the next three weeks, I'm still a PhD student at King's College London. And then I, well, 
if all goes to plan, I then moved to uh, UMD to start a postdoc in the communications department at the Black, um, the BCAT lab. So uh, yes, my PhD is in digital humanities, and I look at race and social media, but also alongside Samara, I do all of those good things, thinking about the intersections of me, uh, mental health, race, gender, and inequalities, particularly in the UK in a BAME context. So yeah, um, twice over the last <laughs> uh, four years, Samara and I put this book together, um, The Colour of Madness. And yeah, this is us talking about our revised edition together and perhaps some of the work that we've done alongside it. And I've known Zine for a good few years now as well, through uni and various travel and writing together. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very lucky to, like, um, had to have gotten to know Rihanna. Oddly enough, we finally met in person in the Honolulu airport of all places. <laughs> uh, but perhaps suitably enough for a digital humanity scholar, we uh, first connected on Twitter, mm. um, and then that's also I got to know Samara, and I got to go to the beautiful launch of the reissue of their book and just see it as this wonderful affirming space for black and other people of color talking about mental health and being alongside both of your families. I think it was absolutely a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's such a pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Liz and I have talked about our mental health and our health for such a long time on this. And it's wonderful that you've actually written a book about that specificity. And also suitably enough, like you're also sort of representing the STEM humanities divide bridging that we also try to do, of course, because you have both an MD and a PhD, I guess, what the proper doctor and our less proper doctors. <laughs> I, am, I am also doing a part-time master's, I forgot to mention. Um, Why? Yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because clearly I haven't got enough on my plate in health humanities, which is also literally bridging the gap between mm. health and medicine in humanities so yeah that's a lot of fun as well mm -hmm. and yeah I guess like maybe just to to bring it back um I'm really interested in talking about this book for personal reasons for the reasons of the podcast um uh, but also maybe even hopefully incorporating this into my teaching so I told oh, Rihanna yeah. this but Samara I don't think I don't know if so Rihanna relayed this but I actually put your book on the syllabus for my MA seminar. Oh, exciting. I love um, that. So nice yeah, on you. affect <laughs> and thinking about race. And so like, I have, like, I, I'm going to be teaching sections from my book. I'm going to be teaching, um, like, Claudia Rankine, Citizen, um, this early mm. 20th century Chinese uh, diasporic writer, Sweet and Far, but also be ending, like, like, this will be one of the books that I'm ending on. And I'm also going to be, I think I'm pairing it next to, the week before it is an iconic woman of color uh, anthology, This Bridge Called My Back. And I sort of see this as a sort of follow-up. Well, not really follow-up text, because obviously it's a different lineage. That one's based in the, in the US, although it's about um, particularly about third world woman of color. And likewise, like these are all um, people of color in the uh, different imperial center. But I see that as, I guess, uh, legacies very much in conversation with each other. And so, yeah, yeah I'm really excited about how this will teach. Um, That's amazing. I, I'm so excited to hear more about that. And, you know, thank you for putting us in such great company. <laughs> yes, absolutely. How about we just maybe go back to a very basic question, which is like, what drew you both to to collaborate on this book? And especially knowing that you go all the way back to school to whatever sort of absurd British year, ah! whatever, form, whatever. Year seven. Or, okay, whatever that means. <laughs> Ashworth and Samara was in Lamb. <laughs> <laughs> 
gosh, Ria, I'll let you take this one. Yeah, well, um, so Samara and I both went to different universities. Uh, We were at school together, um, (laughs) you know, a long time ago. But uh, I ended up at Edinburgh Uni and Samara ended up at Cambridge. And we both uh, had sort of experiences of navigating our mental health in very predominantly white institutions. Sorry, there's a cat lying across my keyboard. And so I beg your pardon if anything changes. Um, So, yeah, so we spent a long time through university thinking about our own mental health. Obviously, Samara working in STEM and myself in the humanities and maybe not really having, for myself, not really having the language to communicate what was going on, not really um, having the sort of resources and infrastructure to turn to in our different universities. At mine, it like the mental health services at most universities are incredibly overwhelmed, as I'm sure we all have had personal experience of. But um, in particular, where I was, there was just such a lack of BAME staff and students that when I, you know, when I was in that space, trying to sort of navigate the system as someone who was black and perhaps wasn't presenting ill health in the way that they expected it to be seen. Um, I had real difficulty with um, being taken seriously because there was this idea that, well, your grades aren't slipping much or slipping to a standard that they considered unacceptable. Um, And that, you know, I was able to speak like calmly about what I was experiencing and I think I always regretted in the aftermath of that that I hadn't gone in there and sort of cried and wailed and stuff like that because I don't think she was really able to see what um you know trauma looked like on a non-white face so that was the kind of I mean this dovetails a lot with some of your work as well doesn't mind but so that's the sort of that was the the environment I was coming from and then at the end of it I did a talk one of my first ever talks, actually, I was on a panel about um, creatives and mental health. And yeah, our publisher was in the audience and it just kind of all sort of sparked from there. I reached out to Samara afterwards um, to ask if she could do this book because there was absolutely no way I had the time in to do it and then ended up doing it anyway. So, <laughs> so yeah, we that's, that's, that's kind of where, because, you know, obviously I turned to Samara because Samara had already done quite a lot of work in this area. Like for me, it was just like I was interested from the side of being um, a patient, the patient side of access to mm-hmm. health, whereas Samara was already looking at it from a practitioner side, already looking at BAME health inequalities across the UK. So she was like the perfect person to talk to. A quick aside for our listeners who are, aren't in the UK context, BME um, stands for Black Minority Ethnic, which mm-hmm. is sort of the the government term for people of color, basically. Yeah. Very quick aside. Samara? Yeah. So Rihanna gave me a call. I think I was leaving medical school placement somewhere. And she kind of told me, look, this publisher has reached out and they're interested in doing a book about mental health and um, people of colour. And I think similarly to Rihanna, I had reservations and just that I didn't have time. I was in my final year of medical school. And even though I'd done writing and a little bit of research, you know, a book is a completely different venture completely different thing to take on um and then in the end because we kind of equated it together it felt a little bit more manageable Mm. um and I think yeah as as we explained I'd already started looking at that area so when I was in 
quite early on in medical schools when I kind of started to have my own mental health difficulties and, you know, experiencing accessing mental health services, but then also being trained to be someone who would deliver those services. So I think that's kind of where that dual focus came in for me. Um, by the time I got to my third year of medical school, I did, um, I don't know what you call it in the States, but I intercalated. So I kind of did an extra I guess, subject of study. I did psychology that year. Mm-hmm. And my thesis was looking specifically at um, black men and schizophrenia and inequalities around that. So kind of from that point onwards, um, I did quite a bit of research in that area and then also put on quite a lot of events to kind of, I guess, diversify the mental health narrative and to just make it slightly more relevant to me <laughs> in a way that I wasn't really seeing and um, agreeing to do the book was, I suppose, the culmination of all of that. There's a different subtitle for the first and second edition. So the current, the updated edition says The Color of Madness, Mental Health and Race and Technicolor. And I believe the first one was about, was The Color of Madness, BME Mental Health? In the UK, exactly. And did you decide to change that? Well, I think so the first time we were quite keen to, I guess, using the term BAME, as as you explained, um, is the term that kind of the official term that's used, the kind of term that's used in government statistics and reports when it comes to people of colour in the UK. And we wanted our book to have relevance in those spaces. That was something that we knew quite early on. Mm. Um, And we knew that in the UK, that I guess as is in the States, you know, there's still quite a lot of um, tension and disagreement and conversation around what terms are appropriate to use. We're speaking of um black people and asian people and you know latin people um as a collective um and that was a conversation we had between us and we kind of just thought let's just go with the official government one at least then everyone knows like who we're referring to um and we kept it quite simple and then moving into the revised edition of the book you know in the three and a half four years since the first book um came out the conversation around terminology and naming had evolved quite a bit and we wanted to reflect that in in the name and we wanted to move away from again assigning a label to us as a collective and I think using the terms race and technicolor which kind of encompassed the idea of of spectrum and diversity and difference without necessarily centering whiteness or referencing whiteness in any way was something we were quite keen to do yeah no notes this is actually it (laughs) And so one way this comes through so beautifully is the very structure of the book itself is a rainbow, which also I think is a really nice nod also to like the the way that so much queer experience is also foregrounded in it. Mm. Would you like to walk us through all the different colors and how you decided to organize them? What also was the inspiration for that as an organizing principle? Well, this one, yeah, that was absolutely Samara's idea. And we carried that over from the first edition to the second. Um, and we, together, we wrote all of the little epigraphs that you see at the beginning of every chapter. Um, you know, we basically, there's a few reasons. I'm just going to go into the background of like what kind of informed this choice. And then Samara, because mm-hmm. you've got the book next to you, you can walk us through what the different ones mean. So um, part of it was thinking about the way that we want our readers to be able to engage with this text, um, particularly this time and thinking a lot about um, the types of communities that we want this to be in the hands of, thinking about differences in access, differences, you know, when it comes to neurodivergency and reading and, you know, the different types of material that we are trying to encompass here. 
the only thing that's really missing from here is audio visual stuff and um you know that's the you know <laughs> one day maybe that's one day in the cards you know because we were looking quite hard into thinking about getting this turned into an audiobook and etc but i think there's so much room for that sort of like even though it's not in this book in the form it is i think there's it speaks to that it like nods to it the idea was that um if we have it split up in this way and if we have it so that people understand what chapter you know references what and very important the addition of a um of a of, a, of an index, index? was <laughs> very important for making sure that people were able to dip in and out were able to um take themselves to the part that uh, meant most the fact that we've not we've not less, we've not just uh, divided it up in terms of content it's not like there's poems in one place and long form in another the idea is that you know they're, they're thematically divided which means that you should be able to jump in and find exactly what you need when you need it so that was our sort of thought process behind it and I think Samara now you'll say what they mean yeah absolutely so the colours, we essentially followed the seven colours of the rainbow or, you know, the white um, spectrum of light. And we went with the idea that a lot of colours kind of resonate with certain emotions just naturally anyway or through popular culture and society. And we kind of played with those ideas. So the first chapter is red, which kind of contains narratives from the passionate, the rage-filled, resilience um then we have orange, which is to do with racing and overwhelming thoughts to represent what we thought as anxiety and mania. Um, hence why Rihanna's, um, her contribution is in that chapter. No, actually, no, it almost in that chapter. We moved it in the end. But um, <laughs> yellow is holds all of the complexities and contradictions of hope. Green relates to pieces that focus on familial ties um, and relationships. Blue is for our engagements with institutions, so whether those are clinical relationships and mental health institutions, or whether they're kind of wider institutions like immigration and, um, you know, in the UK would be the home office, but in the US, I don't know, various other immigration services. <laughs> um, and Indigo, we talk about depression and melancholy, and Violet is about the experiences that we would traditionally think as being outside of reality. So that's psychosis or kind of spiritual experiences. And then right in the center of the book is polychrome, where we've got all of our very colorful artwork. Mm. So we try to do quite a thematic and a, um, I guess quite an emotional connection with each of the chapters. And like I mentioned, actually, with some of them obviously naturally fall into more than one chapter. There's, you know, mm -hmm. each piece might have multiple themes and um, the way which we kind of decided which one went into which chapter, partly just based on intuition. But sometimes we sat down and had a discussion about individual pieces and thought about which themes kind of spoke most strongly um, to us, um, I guess, which is our prerogative as editors. Mm. Yeah, because one thing that occurred to me is like, um, like the association of red with anger, of course, is like is fairly well held. But as soon as I read your description for orange, I was like, I never thought about orange that way. But actually, that makes a ton of sense. Like, I think there's such a wonderful like way that, as you say, like this part of the the means the re reason for this book is about access for many different communities. I think you're sort of tapping into sort of vernacular like knowledge that we have and a sort of gut 
way in a non-academic way and like it would be something that would really help to guide people who are, are less you know less familiar with the psychiatric or mm. medical humanities formal frameworks but can can relate to them on an into a more intuitive or effective level which i think is really brilliant um how did you go about soliciting like the wonderful range of work that he had did you just so happen to have like the call just managed to bring everyone in or did he also feel like oh dear like we need to like you know we figured violet is this do we have to like um, target particular pieces how did you in the end like it's, it worked out beautifully but what was that process so, of getting there we uh we actually started with we, we only started uh, putting things into their sections after we had all the material we did that in a way like in a mixture of getting our personal networks involved as well as like advertising in digital spaces to like sort of BAME arts creative spaces online. This was back in the days where Facebook groups were still popping. So, you know, we were sort of posting um, requests to apply in lots of different sort of POC cultural artist spaces. We also went to different uh, mental health organisations, BAME mental health organisations in the UK, and asked if they would like forward our call for artists and so on as well. So we we established quite a large body um, of artists the first time round. Um, and then we wanted to make sure with this revised edition that everyone who was in the first got the opportunity to be in the second also. So mm-hmm. that was a case of, you know, checking if people wanted. And this worked out so well because naturally over that four years the pieces that were brilliant before ended up being even better as people had a chance to sort of reflect on their lives since then think about how the intervening four years had changed their feelings towards their pieces there you know it was just so lovely to be able to include the postscripts and so on that we did and you know all of the things that it's it's wonderful asking someone to edit their piece retrospectively because perhaps anything that maybe when they had it in print, when they held it in print the first time and they've been thinking over the years, oh, I wish I could change that. And you never get the chance to do that. You never get a mm-hmm. second shot at your first go. And um, and it was just, I mean, that's a really wonderful thing to have been able to do, which means that we have a lot of the same authors from the first time. We also asked, you know, a handful of new people that you'll be able to see the difference in there, like, um, you know, mental health advocates and academics and artists that this time round had you know seen the first version and were glad to be included in the next so yeah and then after that dividing it it actually did fall into place quite naturally because you know like like Samara said a lot of these pieces could fit in multiple places um, just because of the nature of talking about mental health experiences when you share a culture and a community and so on so um, yeah after that we divided it some actually moved between the first edition to the second, um, maybe as a result of the postscript they added, maybe as a oh. result of, you know, how it had changed, how they had felt it changed and so on. Perhaps some of the other themes were more apparent the second time around. So that was a really interesting experience too. I have to say that one thing I find, found funny about the conversation um, you have in the book about the difference between the first and the second edition maybe because I'm like I'm, I'm older than you and you're like oh I was but a baby when the first one came out and I was 24 years old but now I am an uh, I'm always been grown at 27 I was a like what the hell are you? <laughs> I'm worldly at, I'm 28 now actually so now I'm oh, wow. in the grave <laughs> well I guess I'm from the afterlife at this point thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, honestly, no, I mean, even besides that, though, I do feel like the the change between, I know, I'm, I mean, I know we're being funny, like, obviously, 23, 28, still a baby girl, you know, but I still, <laughs> I still do think that there was something so fundamentally naive about, um, mm. and particularly considering the circumstances of the first yeah. book coming out and so on. It's not just a case of like, oh, four years have passed and now we're like mature now, but we've both learned so much. You know, in that time, Samara's gone and done another book. You know, we're at the end of um, careers as well as, you know, at the end of education spaces, Samara's changed career. I started and now finished the PhD. Do you know what I mean? So like the person I was when I Mm -hmm. did that first edition is completely different from the person that I am right now. Um, Or maybe just like a distilled version of her. So I really do think, even though I'm saying like, you know, like tongue in cheek, oh, I'm so much older now, but that that four years is mad formative. <laughs> I think it's a decade in other terms. There was a pandemic mm. in between. Come on. Mm. That's fair. And you see that in the pieces as well. I think in the in the contributors who did update their pieces or even just added a postscript, you see that, you know, the transformation or the growth or the evolution that's happened in the last, you know, three four years it has been a really tumultuous time for so many of us and a really formative time for so many of us yeah even if you exclude the pandemic that then you know completely took over our lives and disproportionately impacted our communities so I think it's um you see that growth in us as editors and in terms of the decisions we make editorially but also in terms of with how we decided to put this book out into the world but I think you see it with the contributors as well and it's that has been quite enjoyable for me as an editor to see that growth um in the people's work that we've been working with and that kind of feels like a part of us now Mm. so one thing I've been sort of delaying is like the circumstances but 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 the, for the reason between the first and second edition, because I didn't want it to over-determine the conversation. And I feel that if people have heard about the book, unfortunately, it has been in relation to that. So we will get to that. I also just wanted to, before we get to that, um, give some structural background for people who are less familiar with the UK. And I feel like every time I give a missive from being on this small island that some people call Plague Island, some people call Turf Island, both are very apt. It is a plague of turfs. So there's a lot of things going on here. But the particular contours of how racism and also anti-blackness work in the UK is something that I feel is is always very useful for a, a global audience. And for instance, like since the first book came out, in terms of where the public discourse is, the conservative government actually released this whole report saying that racism did not exist in the UK. I think with that, and I think that they actually used at the time a, a black woman as a qualities minister to be the one who presented that. And she was also the one who presented the government position that, you know, critical race theory, quote unquote, was also bad and stuff like things, things like that. So it's it's also we're like this book is also coming out in a context where even though the resurgence of Black Lives Matter within the States had repercussions within within the UK for thinking about um, slavery, for thinking about colonialism, I think that the conversation is still in a very different place than we might be used to in the US and Canada, which are the other contexts that I'm familiar with, even though those are also white dominant spaces, also like having their own national logics of white supremacy in the UK. It is also a very particular type of gaslighting. So that I think is just sort sort of a background for like the importance of the work. But here's the insidious thing of how the, this brilliant book ended up not just, you know, appearing despite that context, but ended up being enmeshed in it. Um, and so I want to just open it up to the both of you about how you want to talk about this rather difficult 
the way you've put that is does hit on a lot of the key points there. The fact that that report, we did speak to that report in, I think, the introduction and, you know, a, a large part of, like, the the irritation of that report coming out as well sort of spoke to our decision to change the subtitle as well, you know, because it was, you know, kind of a signal that <laughs> to our government, to our institutions, the political power of BAME as a term that we were able to at one point rally behind and use for advocacy was now being thrown back in our faces as, oh, mm-hmm. look, nothing's actually wrong. And, you know, to me, that to us, I think that sort of signals a um, a loosening of the term's uh, impact and relevancy because now the government are using it to say, actually, there's nothing wrong with uh, with BAME people in this country and here's how we'll prove it. And I think, you know, so much of that sort of, yeah, so much of that attitude also speaks a lot to what happened with the book. So um, I'm not going to go into it too much here, but basically our original publisher ended up, I'm just going to say allegedly, um, and then use that as you will. It's true. <laughs> he was allegedly um, a like a member of one of the largest um, fascist or alt-right political groups, I think in Europe, called Patriot. Is it Alliance or Alternative? I can never remember. I think it's called Patriotic Alternative. That's what I'm going to go with. And um, basically, we found out that she'd been posting on there under a pseudonym, uh, all this stuff about how awful everyone is. It wasn't just homophobic. It wasn't just transphobic. It was, you know, everyone got got. It was anti-Semitic. It was Islamophobic. It was anti-Black. You know, it was was wide-ranging in the hatred. And um, basically, this was revealed to us by an anti-fascist group that had infiltrated their group and happened to stumble upon a moment in a screen recording where she had identified herself, um, not strictly by name, but she identified both Samara and I. She identified the book by name, and she also identified her, her publishing company. So, you know, you can see how when I'm saying allegedly here, it's like, you know, really. So, you know, in light of that, we had a large sort of social media campaign. Um, we, you know, we, we got her to give us the rights back. And honestly, we never even spoke to her about what we'd found. We just, and she tried to put out a gagging order. <laughs> she tried to gag us as well. She said, oh, we can give you the rights back as long as you don't sort of say anything publicly about us. So we were like, no. <laughs> Let's speak this fucking publicly now. Yeah, over all channels. You know what I mean? Let's 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 give us the rights right now. (laughs) I don't think you're in a position to negotiate, especially because the the original reason that we'd approached her to give up the rights. Can I just say this, Samara? Can I say the the charity bit? Um, yeah, I guess just I guess qualify it so that we're not legally responsible for anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Allegedly, and this is a this is actually the first time I've said this openly. So. Um, basically, <laughs> the original text, the proceeds, all profits were supposed to go to a charity that we nominated um, called Kindred Minds. And uh, we discovered, actually before we discovered the whole white supremacy thing, that um, 
by contacting the charity, they had received no payments at all. So, you know, Samara and I had signed and taken a very small fee. All of our contributors had waived their proceeds, um, their profits and all that sort of stuff to ensure that this money could go to this charity. And not a penny was donated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we asked, it was, oh, the book hasn't turned any profits yet, so we can't, we couldn't donate anything. But I'm, I'm not so sure that that's true basically yeah so I think that's why we haven't spoken about it publicly yet because the minutiae of what that means and what profit would have been owed blah 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 is not something that we're very experienced with and we've left that to the charity to follow up on they didn't Um, follow it up to be fair I I know that charities don't as a rule follow up missing donations it's not something yeah which you can kind of you can kind of understand and I think especially in the kind of the wider context of everything that's gone on so that was kind of our main reason that we were trying to cut ties with her as 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 our publisher and then it just so happened that she was also exposed as part of this like horrible ethno-nationalist white supremacist group allegedly um so (laughs) allegedly does so much heavy lifting for us I literally just pepper it in Whenever any yeah. of the RTA, I just go allegedly, allegedly. Like I'm yeah. not 100% sure how it's supposed to be yeah. used. By God, am I using it? But <laughs> we always say that, you know, Rihanna and I kind of joke about the fact that, you know, it was a horrible, horrible experience to find all of this out, a horrible experience to try and wrestle the rights back. But we always say that, you know, what is the best thing she could have done for us? Because it us. freed us from, I guess, having to be tied in contractually to um, that kind of person with that kind of, those kind of beliefs and attitudes but and it also freed us to then give the book a second chance with mm. the wealth of knowledge and experience and maturity that we had gained over the last few years as we talked about and you know give our contributors a second chance to edit their work and refine it and to put it out into the world again so mm. you know we wouldn't have been able to have done this revised edition had that not all have come out well, um, you, would Abby. it have been nicer to not have done that in the first place absolutely uh-huh. but I think it even proved the it proved the necessity of of the book mm. and this work in the UK in a country which seems to still deny that anything there's any form of inequality any form of racism Definitely. and yet you know and they always say you know oh this book isn't needed everything's fine there's no inequality despite you know all the evidence otherwise and then something like this happens which just you know puts into the limelight what we and other people of color in this country have been saying for decades um and that people still refuse <laughs> to acknowledge and still refuse to to um take seriously so you know it's um it, it was sad it was frustrating but it's unsurprising given the context of race relations and i guess just racism um in the uk yeah i think the worst thing is how we did actually feel remarkably unsurprised and i think <laughs> that's, such a, <laughs> that's such a sad thing to say like i think i mean what what frustrated us about working with Sterling Publishing at the beginning was their sheer incompetency. Like they were actually just like a really shit publisher. And we didn't know that at the time as well, because we were both new to the game. We assumed that everything that we were doing for the book was what you're supposed to do as, you know, yeah, we just assumed that everyone does their own marketing and publicity and blah, 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 blah. Um, Now we realize that's not the case. Um, But yeah, so like being freed from that as well and being able to sort of work with a real publishing company was kind of um, another boon. And, it, you know, it was just, I think the whole way through for us, it was like Samara and I, we kind of had like made our peace with it already. But 
it was so unfair on the contributors that we were like, nah, like this, if anything, it needs to be rectified for them because like they didn't like, you know, they put their trust in us and then we've put our trust in the wrong person and that's not, they shouldn't have to suffer because of that kind of thing. So that was like the whole, every choice we've made since then has been about like what is going to be the most fair. Yeah. And I, and I guess it's important to add, actually, because I think one of the key questions people ask when they find out all of this is like, so why then would they want to publish your book, which is all about race and mental mm. health? If these, if this is their standpoint, this is these are their views, and essentially it boiled down to they thought that you know mental health and talking about mental health and race was trendy and would sell well and would you know be an easy, easy way to make money or whatever. And it goes to show again how race and racial inequalities is viewed in this country it's seen as something that it's just trendy left-wing thick left-wing thing that people like to talk about and like to you know uh, moan about and everyone wants to be a victim and we all want to wallow in our sorrows and cry about discrimination and you know this publisher saw that as oh great I can sell a book about that because if you know I think something recently on Twitter people would some some author was complaining about how he can't get his book sold because he's a white man and you know that's the the mentality that people have they're like oh you know if you are if you're black or you're queer that's the only way to get anywhere these days and this like complete myth that they've created in their heads and what happened with the color of madness was another example of that there was this myth that it would be an easy sell that is so trendy that it's not a real thing but you know whatever I'll do it you know because capitalism and you know the reality is there's nothing easy about this book. There's nothing easy about the content. There's nothing easy about what we're trying to do. And we are handling real people's lives, vulnerable people's lives. And these are people's real vulnerable life experiences. You know, some of the content in this book is heavy. And, you know, one of the, I guess one of the updates again that we've put was um, we've tried to do a kind of content indicator for pieces that might be particularly challenging. And um, if you're maybe... Um, I guess pieces that are more likely to trigger you essentially if I want to put it that way and we kind of give people that heads up if they want to engage with it in this time or not and that recognition that this is this is this is real life and you know real life can be beautiful and wonderful and it can be creative and we see that in this book we see really talented people express themselves through words and through arts and through poetry but it also is hard to be a person of color in the UK and we see that too. So again, you know, I think the whole situation, as frustrating as it is, as tiresome as it is, it for me has really only served to empower me and to give more fuel to the work that I do and believe in. Yeah, to me, it seems like it's such like this amazingly cynical thing that they tried to do of like exploiting a very shallow politics representation in a very neoliberal way. And I guess something to also highlight about the context of the UK is that I think it's been said that this is one of the most diverse cabinets ever in terms of UK government, in terms of the number of black and brown people, but as they say, like black and brown faces in high places don't actually translate to change. Mm-hmm. And but in in this way, what's even more insidious is like this, you know, allegedly white supremacist publisher, like seeing that you as like two brilliant black um, thinkers, academics uh, in your own right, and editors bringing together all these people of color in a way that is sincere and is doing the work and yet still co-opting it. Mm. Right. And like, but I think what I really love about the second edition is like, in, in a way it really brings out the structural critiques and the pushback against 
being used again in the shallow way and the way that I think that under this current government with all the gaslighting, it would want to make, you know, mental health always like an individual thing. It reminds me like in like mm-hmm. the American context when whenever there's a mass shooting and they're like, oh, we can't have gun laws until we have to have, have um, look after mental health, but it's actually never actually substantive structural mental health. Mm-hmm. It's only mental health in a very individualizing, pathologizing way that is also still like also is not about inadequate care in any sort of way. And so it really like, I think emphasizes, yes, that this has to be seen as structural. It's not about these are about people's individual experiences, but these experiences are not reducible to the individual, if that makes sense. And I exactly. think that the very form of the anthology also underlines it as like this collective coalitional um, experience that, again, speaks so broadly. And he said like the the very, I think the indigo section he said is like particularly tied to border regimes. Like I like how we, like we've been, we've been talking about it not as in any way a British collection or, mm. or but rather in the UK that we're not we're not trying to reify the the Britishness in a type type of nation or belonging. This is like the particular site and the specificity is important. Yeah. But it's also not something to cling to, which I think is also really important what you're doing. Of course, like part of being able to speak to that context as well and trying to be as specific about the context we're speaking to is about, you know, making sure that you know, the first time round, we were very much thinking about this book as not just, obviously we want it to be valued as a work with its own like literary and creative merit, but it's also a work that does something. And it's also a work that, you know, for instance, you telling us that you're putting it on your reading list and other, mm-hmm. and NHS hospitals and libraries and wards putting it in there as well has all been like part and parcel of what like the multi, like the multi-purpose nature of this book, the fact that it is, um, but there's so much we want to be able to do with it. Um, so it, being able to speak to this specific context, you know, to, to a British context, to a British healthcare mm-hmm. context, is also about being able to then be used to sort of challenge those things, you know, being able to, if we are being as specific as we can about where these things are happening and what is happening, then it becomes much more useful for people going into those systems people who are working on policy and and law in those areas to sort of be able to think and have our experiences to guide them in those choices that they end up making so that's you know that's part of the sort of tangible benefit of specificity here mm-hmm. look one thing i was i'm excited about teaching this is i became i had my first major administrative role in my department during the the, when the pandemic was in full force and I was convening our master's program and so much of it, I felt it was like about trying to help people as much as possible and like everyone's mental health sort of collapsing. And, and I was teaching that, that seminar then, which I'll be te- teaching now with your book, um, which I call complicated feelings, which is thinking about different ways that like feelings are racialized and, and gendered and also unfeelings as well. Mm-hmm. And like the his- socio historical context for it and the way that like, a literature um, allows us to see how that is produ- produced and processed um, in different ways. And even though I hadn't put it on the syllabus that time, I kept on referring students to say like, to works on like feminist mental health that at the time were like um, Anne Svekovic's, uh depression, for instance. And like, I was also like trying to get, I was almost giving out citations um, as something that was trying to be therapeutic, much like I was also trying to manage so many different 
trying to help so many students. I was also trying to help myself. And so I see putting this book on the syllabus for me is about doing that even more so in an intentional way, knowing that master's programs, even though, quote, unquote, you know, we're supposed to be entering some sort of like norm in terms of the pandemic, which is not over. Um, like something that explicitly addresses mental health. So students feel like that could be is actually part of their experience. There's so much mm-hmm. about how so much academic work is done, not despite mental health, but also through mental health, which I think would be a really important thing for me to process and interrogate with my students to make it feel like like I'm I'm not qualified, um, obviously, as a mental health specialist, but I also want to be able to make a space where they can think about it critically and in perhaps in ways also bring it to other parts of their, their lives. And I think that this book, book does, does that. So thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying so. Yeah, I mean, yeah I think, thank you. Especially in terms of the way that we're thinking about education and, you know, the duties that we have as um, as academics, scholars, activists, you know, and about like thinking about the way that pedagogy should also accommodate those sorts of spaces and feelings and so on as well. I think that's just, you know, some of the things that I've been hearing about, you know, the the good practices of teaching that I hear about in the UK, where people are, when they're touching challenging topics, not um, pretending that it is outside of real life experiences, but also allowing for spaces to decompress and spaces to feel inside of academia, as opposed to it being, what is it, strictly, strictly academic, you know, in the double meaning of that term so I think that's um yeah something that like I think is is a wonderful part of the mixture of this book you know the fact that we do move from having some pieces that are strictly um like essays and formal academic pieces versus pieces that are more contemplative and spiritual I wanted to also address the difficulty of doing this work as people struggling with your own mental health. And I also speak as someone who had their first book come out partially out of like real struggles with my, with both like physical and, and mental chronic health problems and what that was like. Cause I, I was your friend as the second edition was coming out and I know of like, or I know a little bit about the incredible, terrible impact that the revelation of your, you know, allegedly terrible publisher had on you and like all the work that you then did to try and redress this with Samara to be as as ethical as possible with your contributors. And like that just as if there weren't things that were hard enough on top of the pandemic, on top of your own PhD work, on top of your your own health struggles. Um and so I'm asking about this in a way that is also trying to avoid, I feel like the sort of pat way of like, oh, do you have any advice for people that are trying to think? Because like, obviously we also know that productivity is a way that a lot of us do process and cope, but it also is pernicious. Um, So I would love to hear you speak a little bit through that. Well, it was phenomenally difficult. And I think I don't think I realized at the time exactly. Well, I think I did know. I knew that it was hurting me very badly. And I knew that a lot of things were um, not going the way that they should, because obviously this was happening in my final year of PhD. You know, the book, we got the manuscript in three months before my thesis was due. <laughs> like, it was an absolutely ridiculous time. And the pressures that I think 
one of the things that I've been sort of doing the whole way through my most stressed periods is because like, as you mentioned, yes, productivity can be a way of managing um, emotions and so on. And I definitely do that. But also I'm such a chaotic being that I think um, like, I can't even tell when these things are taking very serious toll until someone else sort of points it out for me. So I was having a lot of crashes, you know, lots of like extremely productive moments and then extremely unproductive moments. And that's no way to live. And I'm really starting to like, I'm going to have to really figure this out because I still can't, I'm still not sure how I'm going to not do that in the future because yes, it was phenomenally difficult. Um, And I think I found you know, for I, I was trying to just do too many things. I was trying to get uh, extensions and all sorts of things on different things. But, you know, it's one of those times where I think one of the things I kept repeating was that, like, well, nothing's real. Deadlines aren't even real. None of this. Actually oh, I do remember you saying that all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I have to. I have to because otherwise I'll go crazy. Because if I take every deadline as crazier if I take every deadline to be as serious and written in the sand if you allow people to pretend that like productivity actually actually matters and that you know what I mean it's like when you go the higher up the further on you go and you realize that all of these things are completely arbitrary like for instance the reason why we had to get this book done in the time limit that we had to was because our publisher wanted us to be able to bring it out for mental health awareness week in May and then, and we did, we managed it against all the odds. Did we even do any events for Mental Health Awareness Week in May? Do you know what I mean? So that's one of those moments where I thought that there was absolutely no way I could push back on that because it's a big, bad publishing company and, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. But actually, that was a moment for me to turn around and say, nothing's real, deadlines aren't real, and actually it will be fine. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of places, especially when you're in academia and you're in the publishing industry and people bigger and more established than you are telling you, oh, this needs to happen by this, otherwise it's the end of the world. It's not. Nothing is. You know? Like, I just think after it all, after everything has been finished and after I've shaved off years of my life making sure that it did get finished, I have nothing but regret that I didn't take the piss a little bit more. You know what I mean? I think at the end of my life, I'll turn around and I'll go, oh, you probably could have pushed that deadline back even further. And I am someone who pushes that. Like, I think I've missed about, right now I can look in my diary and say, I've missed another three deadlines. Definitely. <laughs> That's what I need to do to stay sane and productive. And they get it when they get it. <laughs> because I have to stay well and healthy and happy and nothing matters. So yeah, that's my take on it. It's probably like a deeply unhealthy take, but as as your friend Riel have to bring out is this relationship to deadlines also like you being on time for events with your friends yeah absolutely right absolutely <laughs> just this adhd what can you do nothing yes. i'm not beating myself up about it i'm not going to i can't because otherwise i'll just be in this constant state of self-flagellation you know what i mean like it gets done nobody died i'm doing the best i can i really am doing the best i can <laughs> You know, and I definitely see the correlation between because like lately, by accident, I've noticed I've not been late for some things in quite some time. I was a bit late for the theatre the other day, but that was just because I was having such a diff. I've moved to. A oh, you're barely late. Like I you only missed late. minutes. 
And they Definitely. were crappy minutes anyway. But anyway, exactly. those were minutes that I, I'm very glad I managed to reclaim. But actually, I've noticed that, you know, now I have less on my plate and less general misery of like deadlines and so on. I'm starting to get to things on time. And I'm noticing, you know, like all of these things are definitely kind of interconnected, I think, for me. And so I'm trying to be a little bit more gracious with myself because I didn't end up getting to take my fallow year like I wanted to. So I have to make sure that I don't burn out somehow. Yeah. And yeah, if that means uh, taking the piss, then what can you do? (laughs) Samara, any thoughts from you about like, you know, sanity and then Monday? I think it's easy when you are quote unquote like successful to kind of be like people look at you and think, oh, you've clearly managed this like super well. Like, how did you do it? I don't think I would advise anyone to do what I've been doing because it was not great. <laughs> like I I've always struggled with um not doing too much. And I think I mentioned this in the conversation at the end of the colour of madness. I always have this fear that if I pass up this opportunity, it may never come back to yes, me. Yes. And I will, you know, literally twist myself and work myself into knots trying to make the impossible happen because if I don't do it now it may never come back to me and that was my big opportunity wasted and you know objectively I know that that's just not true and that even if it is true in certain circumstances like my life will not end um but you know the day-to-day of that I I really struggle with and I still struggle with it and I have small wins where I actually can say you know, I actually can't do this right now. I don't have the time. I don't have the capacity. And it's a great opportunity, but I'm going to have to just say no to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done that a couple of times this year already. But each time it pains me <laughs> because it's not my natural um, disposition. And I think it's this. Um, and I don't know if it's like a, a perfectionist thing or an anxiety thing or being the child of immigrants thing. But it's um, definitely this feeling that, you know, you can't waste opportunities that, you know, you're lucky to get them in the first place and you can't let them go. Um, so, you know, I think even what Rihanna was saying about with the deadline for the manuscript for this book, um, you know, could we have negotiated to push it back further? Yeah, we probably could have, but I think we were so desperate to get it done and to not mess this one up and to do this one right. That that fear took over and then forced us into what was actually a really stressful situation. Um, and, you know, because Rihanna was working on her thesis, um, I took up a lot of the kind of the editorial roles that ordinarily maybe Rihanna would have done more of and then she did a lot more of the admin and the email and the contact and contributors thing but either it was stressful it was it was stressful and it was a lot of hard work and squeezing that in where with you know at the time I was I mean still am to be honest doing a full-time job have various other you know side projects and commitments that I have to do it, it was really really quite hard and I think for me my my anxiety and depression always manifest quite physically um so I wouldn't necessarily be kind of consciously aware that I'm struggling but you know now I think after years of therapy (laughs) I've kind of been able to see the signs that you know things are not going well so you know my sleeping will be affected my eating is affected um my like skin picking and those problems get a lot worse like my skin is an absolute mess right now and it's so frustrating because um, we can talk all about you know body politics and blackness and femininity and all that stuff but um you know it's a 
it really messes with me when I've gone through this period where my skin is really bad and then I see the aftermath of it and then it kind of sends me into another spiral. Um, so I would like to, you know, be able to say, oh, here are my tips and tricks for managing conflict to then lives in like a really, really busy time. I don't really have any because I'm not doing it very well. I think I'm improving and I'm hoping, you know, this time, five years time, I'll be able to, you know, say this is how I do it. But I think the main thing I'm learning is to let opportunities go. It's fine. You know, the world won't end and things will turn out differently to what you hoped for or expected. But maybe that's also fine. And that's the mentality thing more than anything else. And um, I think it's kind of just being more at peace with the way things are and being more present with the way things are. Um, for me, is what I'm working on and what I'm trying to do because something I struggle with. I'm not like Rihanna at all. I don't miss deadlines. If I miss a deadline, like the anxiety that I'm suffering with and the way my I can't do anything else is like incredibly frustrating to me. Even submitting things on the day of the deadline, if I'm doing that, you know that things have gone wrong for me. I am just not that person. If I'm late, I'm stressed, I'm panicking. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awful. It's just not who I am. So you can imagine when Rihanna and I have to meet up, it's quite a like it's quite a, a situation like it's yeah. <laughs> I mean the funny thing is I also am stressed and upset but <laughs> so it's just a part of my life being stressed yeah. and worried and, and, and I'll be like you know what let me think like Rihanna's gonna be late so maybe if I just leave like a bit later but my bit later will be like half an hour later and it's still but it was but, but but you know what I, I bring a book with me I bring a book with me wherever I go so it doesn't matter if I'm early and sitting and waiting it doesn't bother me anymore because it's not like I feel like I'm wasting my time like I have a book that I can read or a podcast I can listen to whereas before that kind of thing would really stress me out because I I'm inevitably have many other things on my list of things to do and I would feel like oh my gosh I can't do this but now I'm using it as an opportunity to be like okay this is a time for you to rest or time for you to chill or time for you to enjoy things so for me a lot of it has been working on my mentality and like I said with my therapist that's been a big thing and on learning certain ideas and expectations um, that I had for myself for various reasons and um, redefining those. So I don't know if that's even that helpful to your listeners at all, but I to think, me, that's kind of been how, how I've been approaching things. And I, I think I think it's helping. So what I'm hearing here is that I've brought additional stress into Samara's life. <laughs> and that's catalyzed her growth. <laughs> that's what that's what I choose to take away from that. Absolutely. You're not you're not my latest friend by any means. So oh, don't worry. Why not? You're not, you're not at all. That's crazy. That's, that's how yeah. latest friend. That's I, I <laughs> oh, I'm very, very glad. I'm glad that you have uh, other black girls to pick up the slack. But yeah. Me, I mean what I am gonna just add there is that mm. um, you know, in Samara's response, like earlier, she mentioned the fact that even though we were under all of this undue stress from the publisher, et cetera, et cetera, about like, you know, realizing that now retrospectively that we could have pushed it back, but that not mm-hmm. seeming like an option at the time. Um, some deadlines do matter. <laughs> <laughs> or apparently they don't even then, but um, you know, that, even that, even in that moment, Samara mentioned how we sort of picked up the slack between us. Mm. Like, we sort of looked at rather than asking for support rather than asking for support and running the risk of being told no we just mm. divvied things up slightly differently so that Samara took on the bulk of the editing and I took on bulk, the bulk of the interpersonal stuff because that was all I had the capacity for like you know what I mean like the reason we got it done is because we had each other 
and because mm-hmm. we were able to adjust to like we couldn't get someone else to adjust to our needs but we got no. each other to adjust to our needs and mm-hmm. I think that that's um that's in some ways moving and in some ways really fucking sad you know, like it's, it's the same thing that makes me think, you know, so much of what I do and so much of what I'm able to do is because of the sort of community of people that I have put around me to make sure that I can survive. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, how often is the community most vulnerable and that is in most need of support that we are able to rely on the most? Mm-hmm. And those with the resources and with the privileges and with the, you know, the Still capacity yeah. can't help us. And that's been our experience a lot, really. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm thinking about it in terms of us working together, Zine, and the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. we all get so... It's like when you spend too much time in a predominantly white institution and you feel it, like, building on your back, mm-hmm. and then there's, like, a point where you have to go spend some time doing something else with people of colour. And you have to go, like, you know, the fact that I got the majority of my work done on writing retreats and us going to, you know, galleries and things like that together and... You know, even when we saw that bad piece of theatre a couple of days ago, which I will not know, <laughs> we saw that terrible piece of theatre. The moment afterwards where we all had the most fun is when we went to a pub together to absolutely shred it. In that sort of 15, 20 minutes that I got to spend at that pub before I had to get my train, that was the most restorative part of the whole evening. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like for me, like th- those moments of like, it's like letting steam out of a kettle or something. So it's like you, know, you go and you do the bit with the bit that you needed with the people that you needed and then you can get on with the rest. And I think that like that's so, like, I mean, so sad and also great that, mm-hmm. um, that that is the main coping strategy that we have, you know, when it gets a bit too much, we go to each other and figure it out from there. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of this tweet that I saw um, from a couple of weeks ago was something like, you know, people's chosen family group of the most traumatized people you've ever met i was like that that's yeah that, that's my that's my whatsapp groups you know 100 percent supporting each other on the verge of crisis or midterm crisis <laughs> you know, like, up and down below the water and just being like push us us on the brink on the brink <laughs> Oh man, isn't it beautiful? Beautiful, <laughs> sad, wonderful, all at the same time. Oh, um, but I was thinking this would be a good place maybe to wrap it up. And I want to sort of end by with sharing the beautiful dedication of your book. So just cracking this open, and hopefully, listeners, you will get your own copy so you can peruse them. But so this is the dedication. For those past and present who were not able to tell their stories, for those who told their stories but were not heard. For those who are stealing themselves, waiting for their moment to speak. And so thank you so much, Rihanna and Samara, for joining me to talk about your book. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.